Hello, and welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast with Joe Lavelle and Dr. Glenn Winkle. On today's episode number 90, we are joined once again by the one and only Menachem Brody of Human Vortex Training. As you may know, Menachem was one of the first guests on the Wise Athletes Podcast, sharing his expertise on strength training for cyclists. Menachem is a deeply skilled practitioner in the art of making athletes better. I invited Menachem to join us in the podcast again to address an emerging issue for me. Over the last few years, I have noticed that I seem to be losing my athleticism. I don't mean fitness. I mean I just don't have the same functional ability to move and react in the world the way I always could. I'm just not stable on my feet the way I was, and I just feel more vulnerable than I like. Well, I've had enough of it, and Menachem spent a solid hour explaining the ways I could find my lost abilities. I think you'll find this conversation very interesting as well as useful. All right, let's talk to Menachem. Menachem Brody, welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Thanks for having me back, Glenn and Joe. It's been a while, man. It has been a while. All right, great to have you back aboard again. It's good stuff. All right. I've been thinking about you and been wanting to get you back on here to help me with something. And in this case, it's an actual, it's a problem that I feel coming on for me, and I'm hoping you're going to be able to help me with it. And that's that I'm losing my athleticism, I feel like. Uh, even though I'm as strong and as fit as I've ever been, I just don't feel as athletic as I have ever been. And so that's what I really want to talk about. I want to ask you, are you still the only McGill Method certified practitioner who's in the cycling triathlon world? As far as I know, yes. The reason I mentioned it was because I recently heard him talk about three levels of benefit to core stability. And the first thing he said was to enable athleticism. So he got my attention with that. He also said to be able to bear loads and still move and dance. And then the last thing was to eliminate micro movements that lead to uh, pain. Okay, well, these all sound like good things. But the thing that I am interested in, and maybe I'm going to get all these other benefits too, is I want to enable athleticism. And so I'm interested in talking about how I can train to facilitate that. Now, I do core work every day. I mean, okay, six days a week, say. But apparently that is not enough or not the right things because I have this creeping feeling, and I'll go into that in just a little bit here, but what do you think about this, Menachem? Can we, do do you feel like there is something to this that in a, a short little podcast like this, you could share enough information that would be valuable? Yeah, and this is where I think we should call it the Book of Stew. I mean, that would be fantastic. You, you know, you have all these other books. So the Book of Stew. Book of Stew. I, I actually had the opportunity to spend uh, a weekend with him and, and other uh, practitioners. We were actually yeah. at Stew's house and we saw two patients. One was a high-level world-class athlete. Another was uh, an individual who had bounced doctor to doctor. And the thing that I think is surprising to most people is how in-depth you have to get with the assessment. And so Stu is um, Stuart McGill, Dr. McGill, Professor McGill. Correct. Sorry. Yeah, Dr. Stuart McGill. Yes. Uh, Sorry. Lovingly known as Stu. (laughs) I think in order to make this the most powerful for you and the listeners, we should talk a little bit more in more generalities. And this is where it's not sexy. It's not fun. It's it's a little bit boring because it's a lot yeah, of stuff yeah. that you've heard over and over again. And, and a lot of people go, yeah, yeah, I know, no, no. Okay. Okay. Where, where's the good stuff? Where's the magic? Oh, the magic is in consistency and rest and adaptation. And really doing it. Really doing it with intent, 
right? I think that's the intent is the missing part because you're doing it. You're doing six days a week of core work at home. You know, most sports, if you're doing six days a week, that's, that's a really serious commitment. Before we go into that, your website, your uh, YouTube channel is focused on strength training for endurance athletes. And I know that you recently came out with a book on uh, strength training for endurance athletes who are older. Mm -hmm. So your background is, I think, perfect for this topic, even though this is not exactly strength, like building up my quads to increase my FTP, I'm going to guess that improving athleticism is going to pay off in your athletic pursuits, not just your ability to walk down the street and feel stable on your feet. Mm -hmm. So let's dive into it. I think the top line here, and maybe I always knew this, but it really has sort of come home to roost, is that Fitness is not athleticism. Fitness is a part of athleticism, but there's more to it. And so how, how have I come to this? I've been, in the last um, 10 years, I've been shrinking my activity to fit my time and to fit my vision of myself. I had slowly but surely given up activities that had exposed me to serious injury and more replaced it with exercise, right? What I didn't expect is that my athleticism, to be defined here, would shrink down to match my activity. And the less I did athletic things, the less of an athlete I became. Dang it. So now I'm in a situation where I'm really good at cardio exercise. My resting heart rate is low. I, my strength training is very good, I think. I look good at the gym, you know. I can lift some weights, although powerlifting is not my thing. I have a strong core. I mean, I can plank like a madman if, you know, if I wanted to. I look good with my shirt off, but still something is is missing. Something has been lost. And I think that what it is is that I've been I've kept working on my big muscles, but I've let the little muscles go. The little ones that stabilize my body and give me fine motor controls. And also I'm not practicing my fine motor controls. And so I've lost something. Uh, you know, I'm no longer solid on my feet. My sense of balance, I think, is starting to go. My agility, oh my God. I feel fragile, like I could fall down if I stepped on something unstable. Uh, and this feeling of vulnerability is new and unpleasant. I don't like it. And it's not really strong, but I can feel it coming. And so I'm, I'm looking for why is this happening? Maybe you can speak to. And then what can I do about it is sort of in general, as you said, because you know we're not doing any sort of um, assessment of me personally or anybody. What do you say about this sad story of, of mine? I'd say it's very common, man. The challenges that we have these days, and I think you and Glenn are both uh, no strangers at all, the listeners as well, in that social media has a huge influence these days. Even if you're not really a uh, firm believer in it, uh, you're just kind of on there anyhow. So Facebook or Instagram, uh, I tend to skew Facebook. Uh, I've been told I've, I have an old soul for many years. I just Instagram is too short and you know, too toppy for me. And TikTok, forget it. It's like the ADHD version of, of Instagram. Uh, I don't dance like that. So let's kind of break this down into the foundations here. So the first one is this is a very common theme and something that I've dealt with a lot the last 17 and a half years working specifically with cyclists and triathletes. So what a lot of people don't know, if you Google my name, you'll see, you know, Israel track cycling coach for the national team. And I've worked with a bunch of high level athletes in the States and uh, a few in the, uh, abroad in Europe. And a lot of people tend to 
think that that is the vast majority of who I work with. And the truth is, you know, pretty much since day one as a trainer, most of the people that I've worked with have been over the age of 45. And specifically, wow. the guys and gals who sought me out the first four years of my career were in their mid-40s. I would say it was a split between mid-40s and late-50s. And they were guys, I think, very much like you and Glenn, based off of our, our last couple of conversations, where they're looking for more information. They're genuinely curious. It's not just looking for that confirmation bias of this is what I believe the world looks like. So, you know, all oceans are blue because I saw the South Pacific and it's dark blue. So all oceans are blue. That's all there is. Yeah, yeah. And it was a little frustrating the first couple of years for me because these guys wouldn't tell anybody else about me. I was like their secret weapon, right? And the secret weapon is what we're going to talk about here, Glenn, because uh, for you and Glenn, Joe. Uh, and I, I think um, Glenn has a little bit more of a challenge in that he's going to be going through some big changes here through numerous time zones. So that's <laughs> going to be something that we'll talk about because that is something that, that affects us way more uh, over our third decade. But let's start with the big rocks. Uh, so the first one is something that you mentioned with uh, Dr. McGill, and that is um, there is building a core for athleticism right? And that is proximal stiffness for distal motion. So what's a great way to explain this to the listeners? What the heck is proximal proximal stiffness? That sounds like I have a, you know, the rim glasses on in front of the class and tapping the blackboard. Okay, class, proximal stiffness. Um, what that or it means- sounds like an affliction. <laughs> I've got proximal stiffness. <laughs> Good Jimmy, ibuprofen. That's a leave. We need a leave for that yeah. one. <laughs> The proximal stiffness, the best way, and I'm going to just uh, take exactly what Stu uses because uh, there's many years more of practice there. Uh, if I want to wiggle, wiggle my index finger, uh, so if you if yeah. you just take your number one, you know, woo, we're number one. If I want to wiggle my finger here, uh, I need stiffness. I need stiffness in through each of the joints below the, the first phalange, uh, down through the wrist. If my uh, elbow is not resting on my desk here, I need stiffness in through my elbow, my wrist, and at my entire upper torso and my spine. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is things are just going to start moving all over the place. What a lot of us miss when it comes to core training, um, we follow what's become very prevalent, and that is planking. Planking is, you know, uh, there's people who can do it for 20-something hours. I don't know what the Guinness Book is now, <laughs> but planking. If you're, if you're an endurance athlete, you have to be good at planking because it's very similar to your position on the bike. Well, this is where what we talked about or, or hinted at earlier, and that is the intention that you have. Uh, every act of strength is going to begin with the seed of intent. And this is where how you're thinking during your exercise and what you're thinking can have a huge impact as to whether or not you're actually building that, that uh, athleticism or that proximal stiffness for distal motion. So let me give you another example here. If we were to go for a front plank, so uh, if the listeners at home or yourself are glad, if you guys want to, we can, we can actually practice this and see what it looks like. But if you go down for a front plank and you're on your forearms and your elbows and your toes, yeah. and I ask you to lift your one hand up and tap the opposite shoulder with it, what is going to happen to the rest of your body? What strategy do you need to have to express athleticism? Is it just being able to lift the hand and touch the shoulder? I'm asking, oh, yeah. what, what do you think that Well, there's a little like? bit of a coordination there. I've got to figure <laughs> out what to turn on to be stiff so that I don't flop over when I pick up my arm. Mm -hmm. What else? Okay. I was at the end of my rope on that one. All right. I shift to weight, a weight shift too. Otherwise there you go. Over. <laughs> the weight shift, right. So it's both of those, right? So we have to produce stiffness in the right places to keep that shift from happening. The power of intent is that when you're doing the front plank 
hand to opposite shoulder, true athleticism is your ability to only move from the hand that you are lifting up and tap the opposite shoulder. There's no shift in weight. Your butt isn't wiggling from side to side. You're not having your hips pop up. You're not dropping your head forward. You're not leaning over to one side in order to execute it. And when you do exercises with intent, you now have a whole new level of intensity. As you're exposed to a movement or a skill, and strength is very much a skill. It's not just a simple act. It's the skill of producing proximal stiffness to get distal motion. So keeping your spine, your rib cage, your torso uh, locked together using your natural uh, anatomical corset that's already built in to lock and weave the rib cage and hips together, you're able to get movement from the hip and shoulder. We have to think about what is my end desired result? When you were talking about doing the uh, shoulder touch on the plank, I thought, oh, that really would teach me to develop the coordination in my core muscles to stiffen my body as I needed to, to move the way that I wanted to be able to move. Mm -hmm. So that sounded like that was getting on target is that there are perhaps that's one of a set of activities or exercises that I could do with intent, you were saying. The idea is that one of the keys to athleticism is that there is a coordination thing. And I think that this is maybe what you're getting at with your intent is that we're not just a brain that has a body. We're, it's sort of a, a unit that, you know, we're also a body that has a brain and it all works together. And so in order to be able to move in ways that we want, and let's go through some of what that means. I looked it up online. What is athleticism? And of course, there's like, everybody's got a different opinion about it. But I found one that I really liked. And it talked about aerobic endurance. Okay, I got that. Muscular endurance. I think I'm okay there. Muscular strength. All right, I'm good on that. Explosive power. Oh, I'm doing nothing on explosive power. Why not? Well, well it might hurt my knees or something. And so, uh, you know, I don't do box jumps and, and things like that because, oh, I could hurt myself. But I probably couldn't do it if my life depended on it now, because I haven't been doing it. All right, what's the next? Speed and quickness. Okay, uh, here's another thing that I don't have. I am sure if uh, a mountain lion came after me, I'm sure I could find a way to sprint for the garage, <laughs> but that would be the last time I could, I'd be crippled for the rest of my life because I'm doing nothing to prepare my body for that sort of thing. All right, aerobic capacity, I think I'd do that pretty well. Flexibility, I work on that. Agility, no. Okay, I don't have that. Balance and coordination, uh-oh, I'm really in trouble on that one. Reaction time, what am I doing on reaction time? You know, I'm, I mean, other than like driving my car and, and avoiding accidents, I mean, I'm not doing anything with that. So there's a set of things that I'm doing okay and a set of things that I'm not doing anything on, and I'll bet that there is some set of things that I, that anybody who wanted those abilities could do to help them. Uh, am I right or wrong about that? Yeah. So let me, let me, that's, that's the direction I was going. Okay. What changes over 50 and how do we get stronger? And the answer is you have to look at yourself as a whole picture. Mm -hmm. So athleticism, technically what they're talking about is very true, right? You need flexibility and agility and speed and explosiveness and, and this and that. It really depends on where you are, your lifestyle habits, your training history, your trainability on that day. But we have to look at athleticism 
really as what matters to you. And we have to play this out as what's actually important. The fact you can take off your shirt and look in the mirror, let's just be honest. Let's call a spade a spade. That's pretty freaking awesome. Like you think about most guys in their 40s and they're not looking like that. They're like, oh, let's find the dad tea. I mean, which has been popping up in my Facebook stream over and over again. The perfect fit tea. Yeah, my daughters say, you don't have a dad bod. Because you've committed. <laughs> that's the, that's the only compliment they give me. <laughs> I'm sure there are more. <laughs> this is the really important thing that everybody misses, but athleticism is going to depend on really what's important to you. But you have to understand what we've done. You know, the basketball you played in your 20s or the weightlifting you did in college, if you took a hiatus of 15 years, it doesn't really help you. So if we're talking about athleticism, we have to choose what's important to us. But let's call what most of us are going to find important. Number one is we don't want to feel broken or sore for two or three days in our upper necks, our back, our lower back, our knees, and our hips after our long rides. We want to get on the bike and feel good and get off the bike and feel a normal tired. Like we did in our 20s. We go do a hard ride. We come back. The next day you wake up and you're a little bit sore, but you go do it again. Number two is we don't want to worry about bone loss or fractured hips. I mean, that's one of the main things I see most guys and gals over the age of 40 saying they're strength training in the winter because they want their bone density to go up. And then of course, those are the same folks who stop doing it during the summer because they just want to ride. Well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. When it comes to flexibility, this we need to be careful with. So we lose around, I saw a couple studies, the rough estimate is around 10% of our flexibility every decade if we don't train it. We have to look at not flexibility, we look at mobility. Flexibility is your ability to just flop around, kind of like a gymnast or a yoga uh, instructor. Instead of flexibility, we want to think about mobility. Flexibility, if, if you take your finger and you kind of try and bend it back, let's do the thumb. If you try and bend it back towards your forearm, that's all I got. So if you and Glenn try that, you're each going to have a different amount. Glenn might be able to get a little bit further than both of us. So we want to go backwards, palm up towards the ceiling, and then try and bend back. Nope, bend. Ah, Joe's got, Joe's got more, so I'm wrong. All right, cool. So um, what this is, is just the, the ability of your cartilage, uh, excuse me, not your cartilage, your connective tissue to be able to stretch, right? How the cartilage is going to glide. That's just a very easy way for us to kind of look at how flexibendy do I think this person is. Uh, another one would be the handshake. How strong is the handshake? What does it feel like? Um, these are things that as we get to know ourselves, getting to know our bodies and what feels good, this is where we can see a huge increase in our abilities for our, our strength training. So the coherent thought, the short thought is it depends. What do you need? You hate doing short sprints, but you want to be healthy and, and well-rounded for a while. You're going to have to sprinkle some of them in, but you're going to use it more like cardamom, right? Just a little bit and the right thing is going to make it taste amazing too much. And it just overpowers everything else for those chefs out there. As far as mobility and flexibility, do we as cyclists and triathletes need it? Yes, but it's not yoga for most of us. Even those who are flexi-bendy, like, like, and I'm, I'm very much painting in, in broad strokes here, but I, you know, that's kind of the nature of the beast here. Um, you know, even if you're uh, uh, that, that lanky, maybe you don't like yoga. Maybe you're, you're less flexible than Glenn and I, right? You, you can't get that thumb to go anywhere past 90. Well, yoga is not going to be a good fit for you because your body's not going to trend that way. It's not going to feel very nice but maybe something like Pilates will, where you're having to go through these short pulses, or maybe it's going to be uh, kettlebell swings, where it's a short range of motion, but with the pulse. You have to understand your body and, and what it's telling you. 
in order to be able to find the right training for you. So mobility training, do we need? Absolutely. There's a way that we can interlace it into our strength training. Do we need the explosiveness? Absolutely. But in small amounts at the right times. You know, that's the short pointed answer of yes. However, what do you want? What do you want to, to do with the rest of your life? The balancing will come because of the strength through range of motion, which is mobility, and allowing you to work through the range of motion you have. All right. Well, so I think I'm starting to get it. Let's try to come up with some specifics. Uh, and again, I understand it's going to be challenging because we're talking about generic specifics, <laughs> specific things that you could do for the average person who is a older endurance athlete. What are the things that we can do that help us with speed and agility and balance and reaction time? Things like jump rope, for example. I mean, what, what would you say? Uh, it really depends. And, and I, I, I'm just going to put this out there, guys. I'm, I'm really sorry that it's so broad-based, but the, I'm trying to share the considerations, not just the short answer, because I, I think that serves better. I know that it's yeah. not as, as sexy. Well, um, as long as we get to some specifics, like here's something that person like this could use. And, okay. Yeah. You know, but it wouldn't be good for everybody. So when it comes to the specifics of, of training, let's just get in, let's get very specific actually. Okay. Let's, let's talk in okay. basics for everybody. What's going to work for everybody. Number one, when it comes to training, we want to have three different training days. So there's three types of different training days that we're going to have both for our on bike and especially for our strength training or our bodybuilding. When I say bodybuilding, I'm talking about what you said uh, before Joe in that I don't get agility. I don't get, you know, reaction time. So this is what I'm talking about. For these types of things, there's three different types of training days. There's a stimulation day where we're getting just enough training stress to stimulate changes to go that 1%. We have a development day. This is what many cyclists and triathletes tend to think of as strength training. This is where they're going into the gym. You leave the gym and you say, oh, I feel like I really did something today. And the last day is going to be a recovery day or a high performance recovery is what I like to call them. And this is where we're going through movements, postures, and positions that are going to actually help you to be able to move better, feel better, and do better, uh, as well as returning your hormonal status, your internal environment down to basis. So what do these three mm -hmm. basic days look like when you're going through your training week? If we are a stereotypical North American cyclist and we are in November, December, uh, let's say we set up our training week as follows. Saturday and Sunday are our long rides. Why? Because, well, that's just the time that we don't have to work. We're not committed to that and we're able to go out and ride our bikes. We're talking about a general, you know, regular job, uh, so to speak. Then we have Monday, we tend to take off on the bike or do a very light recovery ride. Tuesday is either an off day or an interval day, depending. Uh, Wednesday will be an off day. Thursday will be intervals. Friday will be off to run grocery store, whatever else the family needs, and then we're back into the loop again. For many cyclists, what we would look for for their strength training would be as follows. After the long weekend rides of Saturday and Sunday, Monday would be a high-performance recovery training. This is going to be a 15 to 20-minute recovery session where we're going through a breathing exercise, a couple of different dynamic exercises, as well as one or two of the main focuses for your training plan. Uh, right now, it's very popular to train the hinge or the deadlift. It doesn't need to be that. Mostly upper body focus. We're talking about thoracic rotation. We're talking about thoracic extension, the ability of your upper back to rotate, your ability of your upper back to extend, the ability of the shoulder to externally rotate, to reach your arm behind you without having your shoulder cramp the crap out of itself, uh, and the ability to turn their neck side to side or reach overhead. So it's a mixed bag. It really depends on where you are and what your needs are. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and in that session, we're moving swiftly. It's almost like a yoga flow, except we're not thinking or coming with the intent of having end of range, you know, flexibility being floppy, twisty, bendy, like gymnast. We're looking at how do I come out of this session feeling better than when I, I started? So usually, you know, hip flexors, quadriceps, chest, these are all things that we're going to work on, but in a dynamic matter. The reason we do this on Monday is because we're coming off of the top two training stress days of your week. Even if you only do two hours long ride, you're going to be carrying some training stress. We need to get blood flow. We need to get those muscles that have been closed off to open a bit more. Uh, and then Tuesday, we're back at our intervals, which means Wednesday is going to be our development day or a complete off day, depending on what you'd like to do. For the ease of, of uh, our, our example here, the development day is going to be the day that we actually push. That's where we go into the gym and we say, I want intent, I want to be intense, and I'm going to do a, a strength workout that I leave the gym saying, oh, good. You know, if that was a, a scale of one to 10, that was an eight. I feel like I still got something in the tank, but I worked. Um, and then Thursday would be the stimulation day where we go in and we do just in between those two. So we're flossing the movements. That's the way we want to set up your strength training week. This is important to set the foundation for what we're about to talk about. And this was the, the question here of what are some actual things that we can do? In each of these sessions, we're going to have uh, a few different steps that we're going to have to go through. One is breathing exercise. This is going to serve two purposes. One is to bring your internal hormonal environment down uh, to whatever was going on outside, whether you're moving, whether you're uh, stressed at work or something with the kids or whatever it may be, the breathing exercise allows you to block everything out. We're going to make it so that you are going to be able to come into this uh, exercise session and achieve great things. Once we finish that, we're going to go through the dynamic warm-up. The dynamic warm-up is going to be very similar to the high-performance recovery training in that we're moving through three to five different exercises that are going to help you perform better. So Joe, this would be pretty much where if you're going to do six days a week of core work, it would be a dynamic warm-up essentially, where we do a breath work exercise for five to eight breaths with a lot of intent. Uh, this is based off of posture, position. Uh, then we would get into the dynamic exercises. Uh, for the ease of simplicity here, uh, this is where the McGill Big Three would go. Well, they would be the McGill Curl Up, the Side Plank Top Foot Forward, and then the Bird Dog. And then after that, we would have another exercise, which might be something that will help you, like a Statue of Liberty or a quadricep stretch for five seconds as you march. So let's go back and understand what those things mean. Mm -hmm. This breathing exercise, what is that? And am I doing that to failure? Uh, you know, am I just doing that for 30 seconds? Um, you know, and I should feel a little lightheaded afterwards. Um, let's talk about them one at a time. I absolutely love that question. That is fantastic. So the breathing exercise is not the Wim Hof. <laughs> The idea of this breath work in the HV training vortex method is to lower the hormonal status. We're not trying to amp you up and get you excited in that fight or flight. We're actually trying to use air and your breath to be able to mobilize certain joints, to access certain areas of your upper, upper body, uh, and to allow us to take the hormonal status from being highly stressed down to baseline. The reason we want to do this, it comes back to the example we had way back at the beginning of wiggling your finger. I can't wiggle it as fast as I did yesterday. If we sat here yesterday, that sucker would be going one and a half times speed than what I'm doing right now. Yeah. The reason is, is that I'm too, I'm too stiff. I'm too tired. 
So the breathing exercise allows you to get fast and loose. It allows us to take the mm. tension and the, the hype out of the energy system, out of the nervous system, excuse me, which allows the energy systems to work more from baseline. This is really important if you do any type of racing and allows you to quote unquote center yourself. Now, when we're doing this breath work, it's not to failure. It tends to be for breaths. And how we're going to execute this is going to be very, very simple. We want to breathe in through the nose, bring the air into a specific part of the body. So for most cyclists and triathletes, again, painting with broad strokes, it would be the mid-back, right between your shoulder blades and, and your upper back. So we want to think about expanding our ribs out, up and out. So it's not like a belly breath. It's a rib a chest expansion. For the beginner, it's going to be a, chance, a chest because those tend to be spots that are closed. However, I just had today, yesterday, two on Friday, where we actually did belly breathing because that's what they needed. Um, so this is where we're getting directional airflow. Uh, we can use a positioning of the arms, positioning of the legs to help drive it a little bit more. But at its core, it's to bring your, your overall baseline down to allow you to be able to come in more calm and to begin to move your ribs a little bit better. All right, so then you talked about the McGill Big Three. What are those, how to do them, and then are those being done to failure, or are we just doing it to you know, get the muscles moving? What are we doing there? So this is where the most important thing should be done first. So the dynamic warm-up is actually where we get a lot of the main things done. And I think this is exactly what you're doing on your own with the six days a week of core at home, is you're trying to hit the big rocks. You're trying to hit the major pillars for what's gonna help you be able to succeed. Now, when it comes to the McGill Big Three, what these do is help you learn the mind-muscle connection and refining, going from a shotgun to a laser, of how to fire that full 360-degree core or midsection to be able to produce stability for the lower back and the spine, connecting the ribcage and the hips together. These three exercises are the McGill Curl-Up, which please, uh, there are only three really good examples of how to do it properly on the internet. Two of them are Dr. McGill. One of them is from me. There's another that's available on Vimeo, but you have to work with that McGill practitioner. Um, so 99.9% .9 of the ones out there are wrong. They think curl up. Anyhow, be very careful as to where you're getting it because I've had a number of people tell me, oh, I did the McGill crunch. My back pain got worse. Show me how you do it. That is not even close. Okay. So the McGill curl up is one. Uh, the side plank top foot forward is the second one. And that differentiation is very important, which we'll talk about in a minute. And the bird dog is the third one. And, and the same thing applies with the bird dog. Most people do it not for spine stability, but rather just for movement. Uh, so if we're talking about building athleticism, that's not the way we want to go. Uh, we want proximal stiffness for distal motion. So form is really important here. Yes. Not completing the movement not, we're not doing it for speed or, or numbers. We're doing it for perfect form. Exactly. And, and that is the differentiation. That is exactly the differentiation between showing up and picking things up and putting them down and putting in the work versus learned athleticism. It is the mentality and the intent. That's why I said when you come into the gym and you say, I am here to get better, you're already down the path to athleticism. The next step, which most people either don't know to do or skip doing, is every single repetition, you are 100% dialed in. Now, do we have days that we're not there? 100%. I just had one today. Lower the weight, decrease the volume, chop off a set, get the highest quality you can get, and you're done. So the McGill Big Three are going to be our, our big rocks. So if you're looking at improving your balance, 
You had mentioned improving your coordination a little bit. Uh, You had mentioned these would be three of the exercises that I would most likely give you. The reason these three are so important is because when you're doing them right, they're teaching you proper alignment for your spine and proper firing patterns for your core. Your core is everything between your neck, your elbows, and your knees. And when you do these three exercises correctly, you're sweating bullets. A lot of people just kind of fly through their dynamic warm-up just to check the box and move on. If you're looking to improve your balance, balance is about the ability of the muscles and the mind to understand where the muscles and joints are in space. It's proprioception. Now, some of us, like myself, when it comes to golf, are motor morons. You take me to the the driving range, you're probably going to be embarrassed to leave me in the parking lot. (laughs) But when it comes to the intent for these exercises, we have to look a little bit like motor morons at first when we're first learning the exercises. And this is where the ego gets in the way. So you're doing it at home. You know, you asked, what can I do to maintain my athleticism in our basement uh, for skills and coordination? That was your, your main question. And these are the three exercises that will start us that direction because we're teaching you proper spinal alignment, proper bracing strategies, and we're also teaching you to learn how to tune, to use a slider up and down to, to light up the right muscles in the right amount as opposed to an on off. That's that shotgun when we first come in. We're just doing on off. So we've got to start with the shotgun, but the intent isn't just to check the box and come in the next week and check the box. It's start with the shotgun and the next week, my ego is going to stay at the door. How do I get better at the movement? Not how do I do more? How do I make this look more like the sample video? And so how can people figure out whether they're doing it well enough or getting better So are they, should they film themselves? I mean, obviously they could get a coach, um, but if they were doing it themselves, they could film themselves or maybe get a mirror and they're doing it in front of the mirror. What do you think? All of the above. Uh, That was exactly where I was going to go. I mean, I think we all remember this used to be, I don't know, about the size of my water bottle here. And you used to have to carry this around. Can you you imagine going into the gym with that VHS, you know, the the Sony camera, even with the little hand and setting that up for every exercise. It's now as simple as a mobile phone. So what I like to tell people is take a full water bottle with you. You're going to need it anyhow. Get comfortable putting it on selfie mode. Put it on selfie mode. Find an angle that's at 90 degrees, either in front of you or at the side and film yourself doing the exercise. Yeah. And there's also little, little, uh, bendy metal leg things that you can use to set the phone up. It makes it easier to get the right angle and the phone doesn't fall over and that sort of thing. Yep. Things that I've struggled with in the past. Yeah. And, and that's something, you know, for a number of the athletes that I've worked with at the top level, I'll just send them a, a free mini tripod. I just send it to them as part of working with me because I oh. know it's going to make their life easier. And it has a little remote now. You can buy them with remotes that just plug into the USB port. Fantastic. Go to your camera, flip it over to video mode, and then just set it up at a 90 degree angle, either in front of you or at your side, depending on what exercise you're doing, and do your exercise. Don't look at the camera, focus 100% on what's going on. When you're done, come back, click stop, and then you can go back and rewind. That is how you increase your athleticism with strength training. It has nothing to do with weights. Everything to do with intent, and then watching the video, and wow. <laughs> well, how do I get to more this explosive stuff? I don't think the McGill Big Three are helping me with that. Or am I wrong? Oh, they are. Oh, they are. Ah. Essentially, the McGill Big Three is teaching you how to, one, get good spinal alignment. So you're getting the corset, the natural inborn corset to work well, getting stiffness where you need it and movement where you need it, especially the bird dog. When done right, you're moving only from the hip and from the shoulder. Nothing else is moving. That is the baseline for athleticism. 
in order for us to be able to fire the muscles to be explosive or fast, we actually need to be able to tune down the, the rest of the muscles so that they're just active enough. And this is a problem that a lot of us have and that we think in order to be explosive, I have to go, 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 go. But in fact, it's this, that's where the explosiveness comes from. It's from that release. Fast is loose and loose is fast. So what the McGill Big Three is teaching you, and they need to, they need to be progressed, that the McGill Big Three are teaching you how to take tension out of the nervous system, number one, because you're only getting what needs to be working in the right amounts. Number two, you're taking the tension off of the physical properties because you don't have a spiny hinge where you know, you're kind of cracked at the spine because it's arched one way or the other way. We're getting you to take fewer bends and kinks in the system so you can send that signal better. Okay, so tell me with... It doesn't seem like it. Exactly. <laughs> so tell me a little more because I'm trying, I'm, okay. I'm looking at, I got in my mind box jumps mm -hmm. and you're talking about bird dogs and I'm thinking, hmm, how does the bird dog get me to a box jump? And maybe there's an intermediate step. Absolutely love it. Uh, there is and there is not, right? Um, so I'll try and make this uh, as pointed as possible here. So number one is the bird dog is we're teaching you to get movement, just enough movement from the hip and the shoulder to be able to go. A box jump. Uh, if you want to know if someone is athletic or not, listen to their box jump. You mean listen to whether their knees crack or not? No. What does it sound like when they land? <laughs> True athleticism. When you have the, the athletes, there's a double pulse. There's the pulse, the impulse to get off the ground. And then there's the, the pulse to land softly and quietly. An athlete is able to create the pulse to take off and the pulse to land softly. This is where uh, I talk, I, I think I should put it out there more actually, is about snap downs. So snap downs are where you go onto your tippy toes, your hands overhead, or as much as you can, keeping a, a spine neutral. This is where the bird dog comes in. So I'm gonna take my headset off and, and demonstrate. So, so essentially the bird dog, if we think about it, the bird dog is moving, right? So we're on the floor in this direction and we're going one, up, down. So everything has to stay nice and, and stiff and through here. A snap down is teaching us to decelerate. It's that, that landing phase. So we start here. I'm gonna move only from the hip, only from the shoulder. And we wanna land much quieter than that. That's the basis of athleticism. The athleticism isn't just the ability to take off and land loudly. We wanna be able to take off and land very quietly. So I have, I have flip-flops on, which are absolutely horrible if you want to develop any type of athleticism. Or if you're um, a ninja. The floors are cold here. Uh, I wish. Uh, the ninjas actually wear much better footwear than this. Yeah. Um, yeah I was always told to land like a yes, cat. Yes, exactly. Like That's athleticism. Okay. But what most people do when you tell them to do that, they round their back and they, they crunch into it. They, they collapse in the spine. They're not able to deal with the forces. So the bird dog, the McGill crunch, and the side planks, uh, we've got uh, one of the guys that I've been working with now for two years is in the um, UCI Track Champions League. Uh, great kid. We're still doing the basics, man. And, and granted, he's in his early 20s, right? We talked about how that peaks in, in your late mid to late 20s for the explosiveness. We're still doing the basics. In order to get to athleticism, and that, that's a reflection of me and how long I've had for him. So for us in our 40s plus, to get athletic you have to do the boring basic stuff. Sure. And being as inactive as you need to be 
until you can actually do it properly. And that's where it's it's not sexy. But the McGill Big Three, once you learn them, and, and I'm, I'm talking about to perform them decently well, it still amazes me and I, as to how well they work. Because I've had six guys in the last four months come in their early 50s and early 60s with their best all-time climbing for climbs longer than eight minutes. Climbing on a bike? Riding on a bike. And the things that we changed were we stuck with the McGill Big Three. We went away from some of the stuff that they wanted. They said, okay, show me what you want me to do. I, it's not bragging because they're doing all the hard work of doing the boring stuff. All right. So I'm, I'm willing to take your word for it, but I'm not getting it yet. If I went and I set up a box in my garage and I jumped up three feet onto this box and then jumped back down, I fear I would damage myself. You probably would. I wouldn't like that. Yeah. Do I start with a one-inch box? And progress up? I mean, what what is the progression to go from a bird dog to jumping up a three-foot box and then down quietly? So this is where the, the, the setup for the day happens. But here's the connection. So remember, we talked about the three different types of training days, right? So we have the stimulation day, the development day, and the high-performance recovery training day. And we mm-hmm. talked about the dynamic warm-up, right? Breath work, dynamic warm-up. This is the McGill Big Three. The connection between the two is that the McGill Big Three were all developed out of Dr. McGill's 30 or 40 or 50 year in the research lab and working with real people, not just doing research, figuring out what works to allow us to become, he's worked with some of the top athletes in the world. George St. Pierre is one that comes to mind, absolutely dominant force. Uh, Pavel Tsatsoulin is another one. He's not in a sport, but he's one of the most athletic uh, folks that, that Dr. McGill has had in the, the lab. And he said, said as much uh, publicly a couple times, actually. Uh, he's worked with world strongmen. He's, uh, he's worked with uh, top powerlifters, Brian Carroll. He helped Brian Carroll rebuild his back. And then Brian went on to set numerous world records after. We're talking about very unsexy, basic, fundamental human principles that just aren't being practiced because it's not sexy. It's not exciting. You can't market it, but they work. So the connection between those three, the McGill Crunch, um, and by the way, one of the regressions for the McGill Crunch, if someone can't do that, is we go to a front plank, but we do it with intent. It's not just hanging out there. It's being very purposeful as to where you are. So this is where like understanding where all of the, the, the pieces need to fall are important. So the McGill Crunch or, or the regressions or progressions of it are going to help you engage the obliques, the six-pack muscle. The obliques are on the side and the muscles alongside the back and the transverse abdominis, which runs all the way around to be able to produce enough stiffness that you still have this stiff spring. That's what the six pack muscle should do between the rib cage and pelvis. It's just a little stiff, stiff spring. The side planks are teaching you, and this is why the top foot forward is important. It's teaching you how to use all of those muscles, putting more into the obliques or the muscles on the side, which by the way, have four compartments for the nervous system. Not They're not one, they're not two, but four. There's upper, lower, front and back, as well as the glute medius, there's your glutes, and the adductors, the inner thigh muscles, to be able to work together to allow you to produce force or resist force and torsion twisting in through the lower back while you're moving. The bird dog is putting you in a face down position and now you have to use the glutes and the mid back to be able to produce movement. That is the foundational skills of anything athletic. We need a stiff enough core, and then we need to move from the hips and shoulders. That's it. Running, check. Swimming, check. Biking, check. It's all the same. Yeah, I get that part. 
I don't know quite exactly how to move from doing my crunch and bird dog and side plank to jumping up on a box. So that's the next step of the workout. Uh, so that is what I did not get to. And that is uh, the next step of the workout after your dynamic warm-up, plyometrics. Plyometrics. That was on my list to ask you about. Great. Yeah. So the plyometrics are going to be the first thing we do after the dynamic warm-up because the nervous system, the body are firing. They're ready. We've got our big rocks already done. We've taught you how to breathe to bring your internal environment down. You're fast and loose, and we've gotten things moving. Then we have the, the McGill Big Three. Then we have a little bit of more of a dynamic warm-up, depending on what you want. And then we move into our plyometrics. Now, the thing with plyometrics, for it to be an actual plyometric, there has to be a, a stretching and a shortening through the muscle. And when we're first learning how to become athletic, this is where a lot of people skip and they just go to, you know, if I can't do a regular box jump at 12 inches, I'll just do one inch. So that's an excellent thought. But what if we take the time to teach you how to decelerate? So instead of just taking the box and making it smaller, doing something like the snap down that I showed you mm -hmm. and teaching your body how to deal with the forces of decelerating. This has a number of positive effects. It helps the tendons to to stiffen, to get a little bit uh, uh, stronger. It helps the muscular tendon uh, junction where the muscle and tendon uh, kind of cross over to one another to get stronger, yeah. as well as they help the body learn proprioception as well. So this is how we begin to progress you. Now, once we've done the snap downs and you've shown that you can land in a good position, absorbing the, the forces with your hips, your quadriceps, your hamstrings, your core, everything between your neck, elbows, and knees, then we would move on to your hands on hips, and just jumping straight up. So you start off at and your tippy toes, drop down like you're doing a snap down, jump up, and then try and land softly. No hands. Why are we doing hands on hips? Because it's forcing your brain to have more drive into the legs and into the core to coordinate better. The progression from there would then be using your hands. So hands overhead, snap down, come up, and then land in that you know, praying mantis position. Okay. So this is how we progress you. It's great for balance. It's great for uh, tendon health. It's great for developing uh, denser bones and allowing you to learn how to actually perform or, or produce more power, will, which will help you perform better on the bike. Okay. So this is very helpful to me. Now I'm, I'm starting to get a picture of it in my head that I need to build up some capability very slowly with enough recovery so that I'm adapting to the stresses that I'm putting on my body as I learn as I teach it to get better at this explosion up and then the energy dissipation as I come down, but in a coordinated way so that I'm not stiff and my feet are slapping on the ground, I'm absorbing the energy and it's a quiet sound. Exactly. So it's not just jumping quietly, right? So it's how, everything is how you do it. So there's that progression to go through. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I, I think I got that. And then agility, I think, would be kind of a, a separate thing, although maybe it's related to the soft landing. But, you know, I've seen people do exercises in the gym that I've never done. It's kind of like a ladder of fabric mm -hmm. laying on the floor, and they're like stepping in the squares in a way where they're having to move their feet very quickly and shift their balance quickly. That sort of thing is what I'm thinking of in terms of training agility. What do you say about it? Uh, so I think it can be an excellent way uh, to either promote improvement in athleticism, real athleticism, or it can also produce an injury. And this is where we need to be very careful because like you said at the beginning, our bikes are on our bike. We just do this all day. So maybe we have a bad bike fit. So our knees kind of do this and they go out to the side. 
what we're actually looking for, Joe, isn't the end. The end result isn't necessarily being able to move through that very quickly. Ideally, in our head, that's what we think. But what we really need is the suppleness of our bodies to be able to produce that type of movement from our feet where we're coming down and out away from our midline. So I think these can be fantastic. I think that a lot of people are more resilient than they than they think, but they're not that resilient. So a lot of folks try and jump into these and, and try and go fast. The best way to learn a task is to learn it slow because agility is all about angles. I don't care how quickly an athlete, young or old, can do a movement. I care about the angles they produce. So if you want to be agile, a large part of it is having the suppleness to be able to get your body into position, having that stiffness in through the core, again, everything between the neck, elbows, and knees in the right place to allow you to produce a downward force appropriately to the ground so that you're able to move in the opposite direction as quickly as possible. This all comes back to the McGill Big Three again. So we've got to have proximal stiffness to get distal motion. So using something like the the ladder, it may give you that ego boost of, hey, I'm doing something nice. For forward and back, you want to do the chop, 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 totally fine. Go for it. I think that's a great way to start. The body's used to it. But if you want to go to the more exotic stuff where you're going side to side, start off just walking through almost like you're learning dance steps. One, two, cha-cha-cha. One, two, cha-cha-cha. One, two, cha-cha-cha. And I, I bring up dancing on purpose because that is a fantastic way to teach agility. You want to learn agility? Guys, go find a ballroom dancing class. Take your lady, take a friend, take your partner, go have fun and be prepared as a cyclist to be clumsy as all hell. But what that will do is give you something, an activity outside of your cycling that is another way of training, that's fun, that's challenging, uh, and will allow you to see a lot of benefits on the bike because you're, you're having to learn a skill, which believe it or not, as cyclists, we should be able to learn ballroom dancing pretty easily because we, we have an understanding of rhythm and flow. A lot of us aren't that that flexible or mobile, but the ballroom dancing is gentle enough when you're learning it that you will learn how to hold frame, how to actually move your feet in different ways. It is absolutely amazing. Uh, I've had three or four clients like that and also myself. It's fun as long as you leave the ego at the door. And it really helps when you get into the gym after because you've applied it to a skill that isn't like super focused. You're not, I need to do more, I need to do more. I'm going to class tonight. You do it once a week, you do that, you know, as maybe your high performance recovery day, that can be amazing. Something that I've heard, and I actually do this occasionally, and I wonder if there's any uh, truth to this as a a real sort of beginner level agility entry exercise. And that would be when you're out walking, which hopefully people are doing regularly, walk backwards. That can work very well. If we're going to walk backwards, As cyclists, one of the main problems we have is our hip flexors tend to be tight. Our glutes tend not to be working as intended. Our our pelvis shifts forward. So if you're going to walk backward, I would recommend doing two things. One, if you can, find a hill to walk up backwards and go about 30 paces total. So 15 each leg and then walk down forward. Do that for four four or five times. You don't need to do it much more than that. Uh, So 30 paces up, come back down nice and easy. 30 paces backwards, come back easy. You'll feel your quads turning on. Now, to get your glutes to fire, go ahead and turn around and face the hill and walk up right now. And you will feel those glutes firing because the glutes will take over when the quads have uh, fatigued. So it's a great way for us to get glute training uh, because we're fatiguing out the system. Now, the other thing, we want to have free-flowing arms. So as cyclists, we tend to get stuck in the shoulders and we either kind of move like a robot 
where we don't really move our arms. We move at our, our elbows instead. So we kind of kind of just do this when we walk, hmm. you know, and, uh, instead of moving from the shoulder. So learning how to, to move from the shoulder is really important because it allows us to relieve tension uh, across the body. So think about loose arms, and that will help with your mobility as well. And you don't have to do any stretching. And what about this um, thing that I've been hearing more and more about? They call it rucking. Uh, of course, I when I finally understood what they were talking about, I'm like, well, that's just hiking with a backpack. That's a whole sport. It's like I, I carried things in my backpack so I could do things <laughs> where I was going. But one of the things that I always found to be true about hiking some distance with a heavy backpack is that it gave my back a great workout. My back always got stronger doing that. What do you think? So that is actually one of the things that we can use and we do use with uh, some of the back pain patients here. So I actually have one case right now, professional athlete, where the walking on land is not helping as much. It's a very specific um, disc herniation uh, and it's not trending like others, which is a little frustrating. But aside from cases like this one, uh, I tend to use walking and, and I think all McGill practitioners, uh, if I'm not mistaken, use walking as a part of the therapy. When we're talking about rucking, and I've been using this since 2006 with my triathlete, so this can be fantastic in helping us be able to mitigate some of the forces that we deal with as cyclists we're rounded. Now, this is where how you pack the backpack is going to be dependent on the terrain. So if you're going over rough terrain or very steep terrain, we're going to want to center the gravity of that backpack lower towards the bottom and making sure you have a good hiking backpack so it can be appropriately um, uh, dealt with the forces by having the appropriate strap. So the chest strap is really important. The waist strap is really important. Having a bag that actually fits you so it's not pulling you backwards. Uh, if you're going over uh, smooth terrain uh, or flat terrain that doesn't have a lot of features in it, then you can put the weight a little bit higher up in the backpack. Uh, and that's going to act, if you pack it that way and you have a little bit of a cranky back, not necessarily back pain, but it, it doesn't feel good sometimes, uh, that can act as an analgesic. So the walking is a fantastic way for us to work on. Again, you need a, a good hiking backpack that fits you properly. Make sure you use all the straps. If you don't know how to use them, ask. Check the ego out the door. How do these work? When should I use them? Uh, but this can be a fantastic way for us to open up the body. Well, and getting back to the agility thing, it seems to me that hiking on rough trails requires a little bit of agility. You're, you're going to have unstable terrain. You're not going to be watching what you step on all the time because sometimes you have to look up and see where you're going. And you're going to step on a rock and you, you know your ankle's going to want to turn on you and things like that. So for a person who has not done that in 10 years or ever in their lives, the last thing they should do is go out and sprain their ankle. So right. how do they prepare themselves to have this ability to respond to changes in the terrain so you don't fall over or the footing is not exactly what it was expected and your ankle can turn or whatever? How can people build up some of these skills to get ready to then go do these hikes with these backpacks? Great question. Um, so number one would be coming back to how we program our strength training. Start with uh, breath work. You do a dynamic warm up, including the McGill Big Three. Now, if you have to drive two hours to the trailhead, that's a little bit of a long time to be in a car. But if it's less than a half hour, you can do your dynamic warm up, get to the trailhead, you know, do one or two uh, small standing exercises, and still allow your, your nervous system and your midsection, your core, everything between your neck, elbows, and knees, to be fired up to be able to go. 
The lowest hanging fruit would be to make sure you buy yourself a pair of walking sticks. Those really help significantly. The metal poles that fold up that you can have, they really help a lot. Uh, it gives you three points of contact or two points of contact at any point, depending on how aggressive you're getting, but you have stick, stick, and foot. So it really helps as well as it pulls your center of gravity a little bit more forward or backward, depending on what you're, if you're going up or down. Great, great. So what about the person who sprains their ankle a lot? What can they do to strengthen their whatever and and be more attuned to when things are starting to go so that they can react? Okay, so this is actually a pretty easy one, believe it or not. So remember, uh, the three of us tried to get our thumbs back to our forearm and yeah, weren't yeah, that, yeah. that successful. Yeah. So if the listener who frequently sprains their ankle is able to get their thumb all the way back to their forearm, and believe it or not, there are people out there who can do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am the most flexible of the three of us, and I am sure I have yes. sprained my ankle more than all of you combined, maybe times and two. The, the reason why I'm saying that is because your natural setting is more more loose, right? Yeah. So if you can do that, your likelihood for something like that to happen is going to be a little bit higher because you need to learn the stiffness necessary and build the stiffness necessary to protect that joint. Um, whereas those like Glenn and I, it may happen, but it's going to take a lot more force because we tend to be a little bit stiffer people. Um, it comes back to the McGill Big Three again. We want to teach you core stiffness. That's number one. Number two, is we're gonna have to teach your hip how to be more strong through range of motion. So this is where we don't wanna increase flexibility or mobility. We wanna teach you strength through the range of motion you have. When you look at the knee and the ankle, they're most influenced by two things, the hip above, and then how that foot is laying down to the floor. So I just had a, a highly accomplished, in his early 30s mountain biker here for an assessment on Thursday. The reason this is important is because I was listening to his foot strike because that was telling me about his neurology. And what was happening is he just, he puts his heel down, his foot just flops down. There is no control. So that tells me that there's a number of possibilities out there. I know he's gonna listen to this podcast. So I wanna say this and same for everybody else. We don't label people. I am just going along a thought process, which we'll find out in a couple months. This is my first exposure to this athlete off the bike, so I have no idea what will be. However, in this case, when we have a foot flopping down like that, one of two things is happening. Either the nervous system is not has not been firing to control the foot, so it's just kind of pedaling and just it's gotten into the habit of it's just doing this. It's just you get over the top of the pedal stroke, relax the foot so I can come back up. And maybe that's why he's so good at what he does is because that's his his firing pattern. The other possibility is, is that there is something blocking or, or uh, occluding partially the nerve from L5, and that is just not able to, or L4, it's not able to control that footfall as much. So it could be something, it could be nothing, and we're going to find out together. The reason this is important, because then for an athlete like this, we will do calf raises going into a deficit where he gets a stretch and then coming back up because it's going to help his mind learn how to control that foot on footfall. We're also going to do uh, picking up some type of uh, maybe a golf ball, maybe a tennis ball eventually, not a tennis ball, sorry. It would be a golf ball or a ping pong ball or a small little, um, uh, the little, you know, you glue them onto like the cards for little kids. You know what I'm talking about? The little fluffy things. Like little pon-pons? Uh, no, but I know what a golf ball or a ping-pong ball is. Okay, so we'll start off with pon-pons or crumpled up paper, picking up with the toes, teaching him to fire the muscles on the bottom of the foot. So all of these could be things that I would recommend to you, Joe, but it depends. 
you want to listen to your foot strike and it would be on uh, a hardwood floor ideally or a very thin uh, rug. And you could just ask somebody else, can you listen and tell me if you hear my foot kind of slapping the ground or, or am I quiet when I walk? And don't, don't think about it, just walk. But is this just a general rule that a, an athletic person, a person with good athleticism, they walk softly, they land softly, their feet do not slap? In general, yeah. I mean, uh, an, uh, being an athlete is having that impulse control. Athletes are uh, tend to walk with a purpose. So some of them are heavy walkers, but you can tell they're kind of strutting their stuff. Uh, but oftentimes, and it also depends on the personality of the athlete, but oftentimes I found with cyclists, they're, they're very quiet. All right. Well, so that would be a thing to bear in mind just in your daily life. No, because if we do that, remember the intent that we have? But essentially, this is where your lifestyle habits, uh, the postures, positions that you're holding, uh, what type of training history you have, uh, all are going to affect. So you can't just think about how am I walking and walk quietly. You want to think nice and loose, nice and loose. I'm stiff in through the spine just enough, so I'm not walking like a robot. My arms are swinging nice and free. And, you know, you're Dean Martin. You're walking on the sunny side of the street. Okay, so soft and loose, but not slapping your feet, not maybe not doing a hard heel strike, and then the, your forefoot slapping down kind of a thing, but not just walking as quietly as you can in some strange tiptoey fashion. So what other kinds of things? Any isometric exercises that are helpful? And I mentioned jump rope. I'm, I'm kind of interested in getting your thoughts on that. So jump rope can be, uh, that's a plyometric. Uh, that would be something that we would work up to. So I, I very much like a small doses. So like 10 seconds of jumping rope and then 20 seconds of rest or 30 seconds of rest, depending on how springy you are or not, instead of just doing 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. We want to do, when we're talking about explosiveness for plyometrics, we need fast and springy. As soon as you lose the spring, the session, that, that exercise is done. Okay, so short doses and perfect form, and when you have lost it, you're done for that session. Even if you have three or four more sets, that's one for the, for the jump rope. For the isometrics of holding of a position, those can be fantastic to help you learn how to deal with forces and how to get just enough stiffness in the right places. Uh, I generally start people around seven second holds, three seconds rest, uh, and we do like cycles of that. And again, once you lose that posture or position or you're holding your breath, we're, we're done. So it should be able to keep stiffness without having to hold your breath or get really tight and tense. All right. So the last thing I had here, and then we can wrap up as uh, balance. Is there any value to doing like turning your BOSU ball upside down and, and doing things while, you know, the BOSU ball is trying to throw you to the ground? or you know, there's all kinds of you know, balance training devices out there. What do you say about those? Uh, I actually have a whole segment in the Stronger After 50 course about um, labile surfaces. So if you would like to learn how to balance better, first you need to learn how to produce proximal stiffness to get distal motion. There are a ton of exercises you can do on a non-labile surface, meaning a, a stable surface, the ground, that do not require you to do anything that's unstable at all, but you're creating movement from a, uh, a joint while having to maintain the appropriate stiffness. So one of my favorite drills for beginners is going to be a quarter squat C. So if you squat down with both your feet into a quarter squat, so you have your hands on your hips, you just kind of squat down into a quarter squat right here. You extend one leg straight 
you put the toes on the ground and then you try and draw a C without moving and without losing your balance. So I'm just taking the leg out and around all the way back and then all the way back and I don't wanna move a whole lot from, from my body. And this is a great exercise and it really exposes a lot of the instability that you have. Fantastic. All right, Menachem, you have been very generous with your time, sir, but still, it's only fair to the audience that they get a chance to hear you say how to find you online, your website, your YouTube channel, whatever you have out there that uh, where people can find more information about what you have to offer. Uh, there's a whole bunch. I have a book, Strength Training for Cycling Performance, over on Amazon. You can get Kindle or a paperback uh, version. So this is kind of like a desk reference. It's not just, you know, do this and get better. There are three full-year strength training programs in there uh, that you can build, bands and body weight, uh, bands and kettlebells, or kettlebells, dumbbells, and barbells. Uh, I have the Stronger After 50 course, which I've referenced here a couple times, uh, that talks specifically about uh, the different adaptations in strength training needs, including progressions, regressions for over 50 athletes. Uh, and then I also have the Stronger After 50 system. So that's over on Training Peaks. Uh, that is the actual workout program. So also three different uh, steps or paths. You can do bands and body weight, bands and kettlebells, or dumbbells and barbells. The suggestion is start at the one at or just below where you think you are and stick with it. Don't mix and match. Fantastic. I guess that's a wrap. Uh, guys, Menachem, Glenn, thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to our discussion with Menachem Brody. You can find more information about Menachem in the show notes.